0: All right, we've got a busy one for you today. On this episode, we're going to start just talking a little bit about the San Diego dining landscape. And by that, I mean, we're going to dive into a couple more San Diego area restaurants that have debuted during the pandemic. And then on the other side of things, we're going to take a look at a couple of pandemic era closures that are also impacting the dining scene in our communities.
1: Also, coronavirus restrictions are loosening across California and in San Diego County, we've officially moved into the orange tier in California's color-coded plan for safely reopening counties during the pandemic. We talk about the impact on rules for restaurants and other recreational things in our region now that we're in the orange.
0: And our guest this time around is longtime San Diego resident, John Miller, chef de cuisine at the University of San Diego, John will join us to share his culinary journey and what it's like, pandemic and all, to run the dining scene at USD. You are listening
1: to the Scene in San Diego podcast.
0: Hey, Candace, how are you? Hi, Monica. Good. Happy to be chatting with you. Yes, me too. It's always nice to catch up. Uh, so, as always, we have a lot to get into today. So, we're going to start with some good news here um, and something that you've been keeping a close eye on, Candace. And that is restaurants that have somehow, some way managed to debut during the pandemic.
1: Yes. You know, I think we're both fascinated by stories of local eateries that have found a way to open during all of this madness. Absolutely. One success story that I want to share today is that of metal. So we had the Gaslamp Bar's co-owner, Jenna Elskamp, on the podcast previously to talk about starting a boozy ice cream business that really took off during the pandemic. And they just opened a new location in North Park that will be dedicated to the cocktail creamery.
0: Nice. We love Jenna. And I know you've been following her story really closely. So are, are they already selling their ice cream there?
1: So they're serving brunch every day now, and there are a couple flavors on the menu, but they're waiting for their full liquor license before opening the scoop shop component.
0: Okay, so more to come pretty soon on that, sounds like. All right, Candace. so what's another new place that people will see in San Diego's dining scene as they uh, begin to reemerge a little bit, go out and about a bit more here?
1: Well, because I miss traveling so, so much, oh I dear. am excited for Chow Chow Dina. Besides offering Italian-style flatbread sandwiches, the new La Jolla restaurant is also recreating the great Italian tradition of aperitivo, where a bar gives you free snacks while you sip on a glass of wine or a spritz cocktail. It's great.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. That sounds really great. All right. So Candice is keeping up with all of these pandemic debuts on Eater's website, San SanDiego.Eater.com, and she has this great running list of these places, so make sure you check that out if you're looking for uh, somewhere new to try as you start heading out a bit more. Yeah, it's for sure keeping me busy. So we've said it before, and we'll say it again, we love hearing success stories emerge from the pandemic, but in these tough times that everyone has been living in, there have of course been so many stories of locals losing their businesses. And one of those recent permanent closures is that of Little George's Bakery, a sweet staple in San Diego's South Bay community for more than 40 years. The bakery announced last month that it would shutter after the death of its owner, Jean Bartlett. This
1: is just so sad. Yeah. Uh, Gene was 80 years old and absolutely loved by his friends and family and customers. He'd worked all the way up until January of this year when he became ill with COVID-19. And unfortunately, Gene died of complications related to COVID-19 on March 16th.
0: Oh, so sad. Um, In a message on Facebook, Gene's family said, quote, the bakery was all Gene. And so... You know, without him, really, the heart and soul of this place, his family feels like little George's can't really go on anymore. NBC7 spoke with Gene's daughter-in-law about his life, which included owning George's wonderful world of cakes in National City for more than 30 years. It touched us in so many ways and it's been so comforting. We all loved him very much. He will be greatly missed by many people. Gene's most famous recipe was his lemon snow cake, which the family hopes will one day find a home at another local bakery.
1: Another longtime spot that has closed its doors for good this year is Ichiro's Happy Japanese Restaurant on Convoy Street in Kearney Mesa. The restaurant had been around for 36 years, specializing in, in izakaya-style small plates. I liked their chicken wings, as well as ramen and sushi.
0: Oh, that's another one that had just been around for so, so long in that community. Uh, but the owner said this past year had, quote, been too challenging to continue. And so the Japanese homestyle restaurant has closed. And do you know what's going to replace it, Candace?
1: I think it's turning into a dessert shop called Hui Lao Shan, which is a chain based in Hong Kong that has hundreds of locations around the world.
0: Okay, we're going to shift gears a little bit here and move on to the orange tier, which San Diego County officially moved into this week. We were in the red, now we're in the orange, and in the red tier, some indoor dining was back on the table. But what happens to restaurants under the orange tier, Candace?
1: So under the orange tier, indoor dining can continue with COVID safety modifications, but with more customers allowed. The capacity rule for restaurants in the orange tier is a maximum of 50% or 200 people, whichever is fewer. So this is up from the 25% capacity or 100 people, which was the rule in the red tier.
0: Alright, and then for wineries, breweries, and distilleries, there's a big change under the orange tier, and that is that indoor service can finally resume, with safety rules of course, including 25% capacity or 100 people, whichever is fewer. So last month, if you'll remember, we talked about this on an earlier episode, the state introduced some new rules for California wineries, breweries, and distilleries, which allowed them to reopen outdoor service without having to serve food. And also, that was a first for these kinds of businesses in a long, long time. So in the purple and red tiers, the new rules required reservations and a 90-minute time limit for customers. But in the orange tier, those things don't apply. So there's definitely more progress there with this move for those types of industries.
1: And in the orange tier, bars that don't serve food can reopen for outdoor service only with modifications. If you remember in the purple and red tiers, bars that don't serve food were completely closed. So for some of these places, this is their first reopening in a long time.
2: Coming into the orange tier now um, has been great because it's allowing people to feel more comfortable and more open. and and feels like regular life more a little bit again.
0: Okay, so that is our dining industry, our dining scene here in San Diego. Now we're going to move on to other things people like to do for fun here and share a list with you guys of a few more things that will change under the orange tier or rather that have changed under the orange tier. So you may want to pause us here, grab a pen and paper, <laughs> whatever you're into, we'll share a couple uh, tips here. So gyms, gyms will be able to increase their indoor capacity to 25% under the orange tier and open their indoor pools. Museums, zoos and aquariums, they will be able to increase capacity on indoor activities to 50% and if you'll remember this was just 25% in the red tier so much more there too and then the same goes for movie theaters they can increase indoor capacity to 50% in the orange tier or 200 people whichever is fewer Candace, hit me
1: Family entertainment centers will be able to open indoors at 25% capacity under the orange tier or 50% if all guests are tested and show full proof of vaccination. And outdoor live events with assigned seats, like Padres games at Petco Park, will be able to increase outdoor capacity from 20% to 33%, but they will have to keep the crowd to in-state visitors only. And then effective on April 15th, under the red and orange tiers, indoor seated live performances can resume with COVID safety modifications like digital tickets, California visitors only, and social distancing. They also have to have a pre-designated area for eating and drinking set up away from seats. In the orange tier, the capacity for this is 15% or 200 people.
0: Thanks, Candice. That's, that's a lot to keep straight and a, a lot that's reopening for sure. All right, so one more list we want to share with you guys has to do with Southern California theme parks. So as coronavirus cases decrease and vaccinations increase, this month is also bringing some reopenings of some of these major theme parks. So we have a list of these on NBC7.com, but here are some highlights for you. So we'll start with Disneyland because everyone's excited about that. Disneyland and Disney California Adventure Park. Plan to reopen on April 30th, and reservations will be required there. Then Universal Studios Hollywood, it plans to reopen on April 16th, also with reservations required. Six Flags Magic Mountain reopened on April 3rd. Legoland California Resort is currently having some preview days, but it plans to reopen to the public with all of the rides and shows and attractions on April 15th. And then Knott's Berry Farm plans to reopen sometime in May. We don't have a set, set date for that, but sometime in May. And then SeaWorld San Diego reopened in February, and it remains open. So I'm sure there's, uh, you know, some modifications going on there, but that one has been open for a little bit, and it will, will stay open. A lot of reopenings there just in time for warmer weather. Yes.
1: And of course, if you're planning to visit an amusement park anytime soon, just check the park's website to make sure you're up to speed on the reservation requirements and rules for that particular
2: park. It is incumbent upon all of us not to announce mission accomplished, not to put down our guard, but to continue that vigilance that got us where we are today, the lowest case rates, positivity rates that is in America. We are seen bright light at the end of the tunnel
0: okay so we've covered a lot of ground here but now we're going to take you over to the university of san diego to meet john miller chef the cuisine there john has been
1: cooking for 30 years four of those spent running all aspects of the dining program at usd
0: he also once competed on the tv cooking competition chopped fun okay let's head into our conversation with john
1: Well, John, thank you for joining
0: us on the podcast today.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, it looks like you're in your office at work.
2: Yes, ma'am, I am uh, doing a little uh, Puerto Rican menu this morning for the students in Mercado, so it's exciting.
0: Nice. Well, John, um, we want to start with you just sharing a little bit of background on your time in San Diego, your culinary career, and uh, just how you ended up at USD.
2: Sure. Um, I've been a a cook and a chef for about thirty years. Um, grew up in a, in a family in um, Southeast Pennsylvania, in Amish country, very, very humble beginnings, um, but really never cooked anything until I was about 19 or 20. Um, and I was <clears throat> pursuing a, d- a degree in East Asian studies and went to Japan for a homestay. And, and basically I had a, a whole lot of fun there, ran out of money early. And uh, my host mother got me a, a job working in a Japanese homestyle kitchen, uh, just to kind of connect it for about a couple months. And I'd never cooked anything, but immediately it, it grabbed me and I loved it. Um, came home, finished my degree, and I had that tough conversation with my parents that I was going to go be a cook now after four years of school. Um, so cooked around a lot. I've cooked inside and outside the United States, um, a lot of restaurants, restaurants, um, you know, things like, of course, the university, hotels, cater a lot of catering, too. Um, <clears throat> what brought me to San Diego was I was hired to come out and work for um, Roy's Hawaiian Fusion, which is in, in La Jolla in downtown, doing Hawaiian Fusion cuisine. Um, and the, the, the gentleman who was the chef at that time, David Abella, um, brought me out to train me as one of his sous chefs. Um, so I, I did that um, and worked there. And then I had the opportunity and... Uh, to join education. So I I had already done hotels, I'd done the Ritz-Carlton, did teaching for 13 years as well as catering um, and had a chance to work with a bunch of different master chefs, American and French master chefs, which is kind of nice, which has put me on the path to um, pursuing the American master chef exam here. So we'll see how that goes, but that's on the docket. Um, I've done, I'm classically French trained, but I have done an awful lot of stuff um, with, with Asian cuisine primarily um, with, a, you know, with a degree in Japanese, I'm sure you can imagine that. And um, what brought me, so I, I've worked in different places in San Diego. Um, I was working at a place up in Carlsbad called Bistro West doing a whole bunch of American comfort food and had the opportunity to, to sit down with Andre Mollier, who's our VP of Auxiliary and, and talk about an opportunity here. And it was a really good opportunity to come to USD because it's such an internationally focused university and so well-respected. And um, his vision is so so broad and so um it's it's such a it's such a great vision to follow that I, I really was was blessed to come here and have a chance to work with him uh since i've been at usd i've, I've done um, primarily banquets and catering as well as la grande seraza restaurant um the restaurant is sort of mediterranean focused although we do bring other things in um, our catering is much broader um, and of course then there is the pandemic so since that's happened uh catering and the uh, restaurant closed but i was Fortunate enough to work with student dining down in Pavilion, and uh, extensively with rewriting menus for Tumercado, which is the other outlet that's been open the whole time.
1: Tell us a little bit about your experience on Chopped. How did that come about? Do you do you remember one of the dishes that you cooked there? And and do you hope that this leads you to maybe doing some other kind of food television shows?
2: That's that was a really kind of random thing. I uh, you know my my wife has always pushed me to go and do um, food on TV. And I've done so much filming of, of vet, you know, demos and things like that. I'm pretty comfortable in front of a camera. Um, but that is a very different experience You're when you're doing that, that's being comfortable in front of 25 cameras, um, literally that are all directly in front of you. Um, I was actually, when I got the call to, to interview for it, I was training for a competition here in San Diego. I, I compete a lot through the American culinary Federation, um, through sanctioned competitions. And I was actually training for one of those. Um, had a chance to go and do my demo reels and then it took about a year and maybe three months before they actually got me on. And then it took another over a year to actually release the episode. Um, So we didn't know when it would be. Um, It was an amazing experience. I think of all the shows, um, I like Chop the most because there's not a lot that can really be set up. It's so market basket and so impromptu and all a minute that it is up to the the cooks. I mean, I think even on Top Chef, there's a lot of there's a lot of outtakes and edits and all that kind of stuff. You don't have that on Chopped. You have, you know, either either 20 or 30 minutes to cook something with a million cameras in your face. Um, and it was incredible. Um, I got some unusual ingredients for sure. They, they did not uh, disappoint. I, I definitely <laughs> got some things that were challenging. Um, I would say one of the most challenging in uh, the entree uh, round, they gave me what's called booza ice cream which is, I think, the oldest form of ice cream in the world. It has resins and stuff like that in it, so it's kind of stretchy. Mm-hmm. But I got a key lime booza, which is uber sweet, which is not perfect when you're trying to do savory food. Uh, and But I was lucky. I, I turned it into a Thai curry, uh, which actually won me that round. And uh, it was really, really good. So, you know, I think if you've ever seen that show – What's really what you underestimate before you go there is the judges are much, much closer in like physically closer to you than they look like they are on TV. You hear everything they say and that's on purpose and they really can shake you up with that. Um, I got um, some tough judges and it was a great experience. Uh, ultimately, um, went out in, in the dessert round to a guy, a great, a great chef from uh, from Manhattan. Uh, but it was a, a fantastic experience. and I would love to go and do it again.
0: That's great. Yeah, nice. Was your wife pretty excited that you finally got on a on the TV cooking shows?
2: Yeah, I think she would have been more excited if I had won that cooking show. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it, she she was. And, you know, it was it was really cool. Actually, I, I missed the email letting me know it was going to be on TV, if you can believe that. And so I turned on Chopped and I was on. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. My children, in fact, I didn't even see it. My children were sitting in front of the TV and my, my three year old daughter came to she said, Daddy, you're on TV and <laughs> so ran in there and there I am on, tel- on television. Um, but it was really cool to see my kids, you know, watch that. And, um, and I think my wife was proud.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I bet she was. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about the restaurants on campus? Can people actually go there? I know you mentioned the pandemic kind of shook things up there, but um, maybe you can share with us, you know, the restaurant and the pavilion and, and how people can access that.
2: Sure. I, everything on campus is accessible by, by the public. Um, okay. At, I think there's a misconception that only LaGrange Raza is available to the public. That tends to be the one where we get the most outside um, folks coming onto campus to dine, Um, especially because we have, you know, special events and we have wine dinners and things like that, that get extra, you know, advertised into into the community. Um, Really strong support from the local community here. Um, You know, we always get between 65 and 100 guests at wine dinners, which is great. Uh, but there are other outlets um, right now. Bosley Cafe, tu Mercado, and the Pavilion are the only ones that are open. Um, the other very notable one, of course, is is La Paloma, uh, and then and there are other little little things going on. Um, and there are, there are you know other venues. Right now, I know they're building one into the business school, which will be, uh, from what I understand, a very very nice outlet, uh, sort of like Mercado but more upscale. I think from that in terms of just. Almost like a like a it's hard to describe, but something that'll be like a a more organic um, local you know represented st- uh, ingredients things like that. Um, and then we have catering. We do mo- so probably seventy percent of the catering we do is on campus for for lo- for lo- you know folks here, um, with thirty percent coming from the outside.
0: Okay, and do you have a specialty dish, John? That is like really popular among students or faculty or even just the public.
2: It's you know it's hard to answer that I think because one thing about working for, for chef um, Molly is that we, we, we are doing new things all the time here. And so there's been a lot of those. Um, There is one, there's a sandwich in Tumercado right now. That's a Peruvian beef sandwich that we just put on, for example, and that is, that is flying out the door, which is great. Um, You know, aje amarillo marinated is really, really good. Um, But we've just done so much here. Um, And we're given the opportunity to practice so much broad cuisine that it's hard to nail it down to one or two.
0: That's fun though. Changing it up is, is good. Good way to keep it fresh every day.
2: Well, that's the other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm having a background in education I'm a lifelong learner and you are forced to be that way here. If you aren't interested in learning new cuisines and sharpening your skills and cuisines that you've seen, but aren't strong at, you're not going to be successful here. And so, um, I like that, you know, one of the reasons I came here is I knew I would be pushed to constantly innovate and change and elevate and, and learn new things, and, and it's it's definitely lived up to that.
1: When do you expect um, La Grande Terraza to reopen?
2: Well, um, that's a good question. We are we are targeting um, an early May opening, although that, of course, has everything to do with the state and local folks Um but I have written and submitted a menu for that, um, and it's it's under review. Um, and we'll, I'm sure if we are going to do that, we'll, we'll start the hiring process relatively quickly because our team is unfortunately kind of disappeared. So we'll be starting not from scratch, but um, there's going to be a lot of new folks that we need.
1: Yeah, I think that's a situation facing a lot of restaurants right now, trying to get restarted. How has the pandemic affected the way students are eating uh, on campus? Are they doing mostly takeout, or are they eating in dining halls
2: it's we can't until very recently we couldn't have anyone dining inside um and even even doing some of the 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 communal dining outside that we may have seen or we've set up um wasn't a wasn't a possibility um it's obviously slowly loosening up i can tell you that when we started this process um everything was carried out we were we were producing bagged meals um for every three meals a day for every, every single student. And that was, at, you know, at one point 250, 300 students um, that we were just sending to, you know, out that they would come and pick up for mostly for reheating at home. Since then, um, when they, when we, they were able to reach and that was really more at the end of last year since they re- returned to campus, it's been a relatively small number, um, obviously compared to the normal student body. Um, the dining, the pavilion dining has managed most of that. Although two Mercado gets an awful lot of that too. Um, to Mercado is still doing sort of what they normally do in terms of producing food and and sending it out or um, sharing the food from the hot case that we produce. And those are all international, almost entirely international menus that we do. Like today is, like I said, Puerto Rican uh, cuisine. The pavilion has been um, not that different in terms of what the students experience other than um, there can't be a lot of grab and go. And um, Obviously, there is a very, very, you know, tight limit to how many folks can be in the pavilion at any, you know, in, in the dining area at any one time. That's that's lightening up a little bit. Um, but I, I would say that we've really been challenged to keep every station open, to really push hard, to continue to produce as, as close to the same experience as they would normally get. Um, it's really important to us that, that, you know, the students get that experience. Um, and even even when we were just doing box, you know, purely box food, there's no way there's no way to mimic the, the variety that they get in Pavilion, but we were working very hard to switch menus up to produce different things they hadn't had before. There are many, many students that um, dine with alternate dining lifestyles, you know, vegan and vegetarian and gluten-free, which is really, really good. I had a team of two guys just working on those. Um, I think a lot of cooks and chefs kind of wince when that comes at them. They're like, Oh no, here's this person that's vegan, but we embrace it. And we actually cook from the perspective of starting with um Vegan and gluten free food, and then adding either either you know meat or um, gluten to a dish. We try to start that way instead of having to retrofit things because it's just easier to do.
1: That's good. No one's so no one's missing out,
2: right? And it's it's critical. I mean, there's so not only are are there you know there's there's people that don't want to die in a certain way, but we have you know bona fide allergies and gluten intolerances, and those are serious. And we we take them seriously. We want to make sure that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a parent. If my you know when my son's getting ready to go off to school next year, and I would want them to take good care of him. And I look at that um, as a parent when I'm when I'm cooking and making sure that we honor those things that we the the requests that we get.
0: So, John, you touched a little bit on, you know, obviously wanting to make the dining experience a good one for students. Um, What is it like, you know, on a personal level to to cook for these students, some of them maybe away from home for the first time and especially like under these circumstances, you know, this isn't your typical school year. The stress levels are higher and it maybe it's scarier in a lot of ways, you know? So, so what's it like for you to, to cook for these
2: students? Well, it's different, especially because most of what I've done to date here, uh, other than the pandemic has been catering, you know, banquets and catering and, and the restaurant. So in banquets and catering, um, it's not uncommon that I never see my guests because we produce the food and it goes to the event. Um, there are events that we do where I'll attend and you know be doing things live. And those are my favorite ones because I get to interact. Um, in the restaurant, I do spend more time in the dining room uh, than you know at a catering event, but it's still not where I spend a lot of my time um, because I'm in the kitchen making sure the food is going out the way it should. And it's been really a blessing having a chance to work in Pavilion because I'm seeing every client they're, solid. they're standing in front of me, they're asking questions. And you're right, a lot of them, it's, it's very stressful. Um, even if they're not a first year student, it's very stressful. And, and we try to try to take that off of them a little bit. Um, I, I, I find that food is one of those remedies that can fix almost everything if you do it well. Um, and that's why so many great experiences happen across it. Um, I think it's important that we listen very carefully to our students and hear the message that they're saying however they say it, um, because we learn from that. And, you know, if I can have a chance to talk to a student that's from a culture that I'm not from, and they know how to do something, I want to know how they do it. And there have been many conversations that I've had with students where I've I've kind of probed them, and they're kind of like, you're asking me, you're the chef. I'm like, yeah, but you know how to do this, and I don't. So those are my favorite conversations. And uh, I think, you know, it's always cool to see a student walk back up and their mom's recipes showing up on the menu maybe. And they're kind Aww. of like, you know, it's really, that's, that's one of those wins that we can try to try to achieve. And I think we do, we have a great team downstairs um, in pavilion. And it's been really great to work with them. My guys from Banquets and Catering and LGT or uh, Gran Terraza are downstairs and have been. So it's just been nice to, to have that opportunity.
0: Yeah. Do you think that they, they find some comfort in some of those dishes
2: I think so because it's kind of the one thing, and especially because there is a cycle. You know, there's there's cycle programming down there. It's it's something that's predictable for them. Um, it was a little rough at the beginning because it wasn't exactly the same as what they were used to, but it was close. And every you know every every time it regulations kind of loosened up a little bit. We really made an effort to try to return it as close to what it could, what it used to be. And it's going to be that way. I mean, as soon as, as soon as this lifts, I'm, I would imagine by next year, we'll be back to relative normal, whatever that is. Um, but I think it's been, we've learned a lot and I think we can take that into the new year for sure.
1: Great. Well, John, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It was great to get your
0: perspective.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. You can find coverage on everything we talked about, the orange tier, the amusement parks, all of that on NBC7.com and in our Eater San Diego and NBC7 roundups, which publish every Friday on the scene section of NBC7.com.
1: Monica will share highlights from this episode in her podcast show notes on NBC7.com. And I have my running list of new local restaurants on SanDiego.Eater.com.
0: If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to Seen in San Diego on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Thanks, and we'll talk again soon.